to the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, brought to you by Journey Dog Training and the Pandemic Puppy Raising Support Group on Facebook. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I'm super excited to be here with you. I'm a professional dog trainer, but this is actually my first time raising a puppy too, so I'm right in the trenches with you guys on the good, the bad, the cute, and the stinky. Today, we're talking to Dr. Jennifer Summerfield of Brown Veterinary Services in Wayne, West Virginia. Dr. Jen is a veterinarian and certified professional dog trainer knowledge assessed. She's a member of the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior, which is also known as ABSAB, and the Association of Pet Dog Trainers, APDT. Dr. Jen is here today to help guide us through the tangle of information out there surrounding vaccinations and socialization, as well as some other common puppy problems that are best directed towards a veterinarian. So welcome to the podcast, Jen. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and thanks for making time on your Saturday. <laughs> Always what else would I be doing on a Saturday, right? This is about as good as it gets. You know, you, you can't be sitting around on a Saturday talking about dog stuff. Yeah, it really, really could be a whole lot worse. Um, <laughs> so before getting into it, um, just a reminder for all of our listeners that this podcast is supported by our members on Patreon. Um, for as little as three bucks a month, you can support the podcast and get perks like submitting questions for us to tackle at the end of each episode you can sign up for that over at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. So Jen, how do you guide your clients through socialization when puppies aren't done with vaccinations? And, you know, obviously that could be the one question we covered this entire right, hour. Yeah, that could, that could cover us for the whole conversation, really. Um, <laughs> so that is a really good question and something that definitely comes up a lot from clients. Um, you know, I know it's even something that gets debated about a bit in our field, and I can tell you that the short answer to that question is we do definitely want to make sure that we are actively working on socialization stuff with our puppies before they are finished with their vaccine series. Okay. Um, that's kind of the punchline that, that we have to keep coming back to. And I know that that's a little bit um, different advice than, than way back in the day. What we, we kind of used to feel as a field that's evolved a bit. And I think that our you know, professional organizations are doing a good job trying to get that message out and make sure that veterinary profession as a whole is giving um, kind of a unified voice on that. <laughs> but it's been kind of slow coming. Um, the uh, ABSAB that you mentioned in the intro, the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior, which is kind of our um, professional behavior organization on the veterinary side of things, actually does have a position statement about puppy socialization mm -hmm. that um, if you don't have it, I can certainly send you a link and you can put yeah, it in the show notes sure. for today. But um, where they emphasize, you know, in, in their actual official statement that it is actually super important for owners to be getting their puppies out and about socializing them before they are finished with their vaccine series. And the mm -hmm. reason for that is that when we talk about the socialization period in puppies, which um, I don't know if you've covered a lot about this on some of your other podcasts, probably, but basically, yeah, yeah so your, your listeners know this. But in general, when we talk about the socialization period, we're talking about this period that's fairly specific, right? Runs from about three weeks to about 12 weeks of age or so. You'll hear slightly different ages on that depending on the source. But basically, three to 12 weeks is a pretty good, um, you know, guesstimate for that, that period of time. And what we're talking about with the socialization period is basically this period where the puppy's brain is primed to be learning about the world and figuring out what is normal, what is safe, what do we not need to freak out about. So things that they encounter during that age period, they're, they have a tendency, as long as nothing super scary or bad happens with it, to kind of categorize that as like, well, apparently this is normal and safe, you know, so that includes... <laughs> People with umbrellas and neighbors mowing their lawn and kids running and playing with balls and, you know, other dogs and cats and people with hats and people with beards and just all these things that um, puppies have, you know, probably never seen before at that point. But if you if they see them and they're exposed to them in a, a neutral or hopefully kind of a positive way at that age, then their brain kind of goes, OK, that's fine. That's normal. Men with beards, they're cool. Men with hats, they're cool. Um, you know, which is important for later in life because we don't want our adult dogs to be freaking out about all these things that we know are part of normal life, but they may not see that way. Problem is that if they don't get exposed to these things during that socialization period, so that kind of three to 12 week age period, then things change. 
right? So after that point, the brain is kind of primed to default to, hey, if I haven't seen this or experienced it before, it's probably scary and bad and I should, you know, bark at it or run away from it or growl at it or try to bite it or whatever behavioral strategy your adult dog might employ for things they're not comfortable with. Uh, pretty much none of which are things that we want to see in our adult pet dogs. So for that reason, it's really important that we take advantage of that kind of three to 12 week age period. And that's kind of our key time when we need our puppies to be out and about seeing the world. So when we talk about vaccinations, here's the problem, right? Your puppy vaccination series isn't finished until your puppy's about 16 weeks old. Right. So there's your issue, right? So if you're like, well, yeah, we'll do all that socialization stuff after we're done with vaccines, we've already kind of missed the boat at that point. You know, it's not that you can't do anything. It's not like, oh, the window has slammed shut and that's it and it's over. But we know that your socialization efforts are going to be a lot less efficient um, and potentially a lot less effective after that time. So that's kind of the the trade-off or the tension between that, that um, we can't just say, well, yeah, socialization, that's important. We'll do it after he's vaccinated. Um, yeah, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, I know my um, my puppy Niffler is 15 weeks old today. He's getting his last round of shots on Tuesday. Yeah, yeah it's usually yeah, I mean, right I, at that like kind of 15 to 16 week age, yeah. something like that. But but yeah, it's after after the end of the real socialization period. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, kind of keeping that in mind because I, we don't want to minimize the risk of things like parvo or distemper. For like, sure, we don't want parvo or distemper either. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. They're they're both horrible, horrible yes. diseases. Um, and you know, we absolutely don't want to make our puppies to be getting those, or you know, even something like kennel cough or you know the other things they're not vaccinated against her. For God sure. Forbid, right. Right. Um, so what are some of the places that people can take their puppies at different stages of vaccination or strategies that they can employ to make sure that they're they're getting this all-important socialization in while also not exposing their puppy to parvo, rabies, distemper, bordetella? Yes, for sure. So that's a trade-off, right? Um, and I think... I think maybe there was a question you were going to ask a little bit later, but um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about it here too. One thing that I try to, to kind of reassure people about is our vaccines for things like parvo and distemper are very, very effective. Mm -hmm. um, now I live in an area, you know, I, I'll, I'll be the first to say I take parvo super seriously, right? Distemper super seriously. Yeah. I know there are some parts of the country where that's, you know, not a huge issue. They don't see it much. Um, I practice in West Virginia. We see it a ton. We see it a ton, a ton, a ton, especially in the summertime. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we see parvo puppies multiple times a week and it's super sad and it's a really crappy disease. And for sure, we don't want it. Yeah. But here's the thing. I very, very, very rarely see a puppy with Parvo who is actually current on its vaccination series with where it's supposed to be. Mm, right? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I see tons of Parvo puppies, but they are overwhelmingly um, puppies who just have never been vaccinated or they were oh. vaccinated like once, but it was, you know, when they were eight weeks old and now they're six months old and they have Parvo. So not to say that, oh, as long as your puppy's current on their vaccine series, it's 100% impossible that they're going to get parvo. Um, I've seen it, but I've seen it probably, like, I could count on the fingers of one hand the number of times I've seen it versus gotcha. I've seen, like, probably in the hundreds of puppies yeah. who just were unvaccinated, you know, just, just plain old unvaccinated or, um, you know, had an incomplete vaccine series and were way overdue for when they should have had boosters. So I do think that to some extent, um, people worry, I think people feel like until that 16 week period, it's like, oh, my puppy's like super susceptible. And if they get exposed to any parvo, they're totally going to get it. And I, my experience in life suggests that that's not the case. Um, yeah. That even before the vaccine series is finished, those vaccines are pretty darn effective. We yeah. know that there are probably windows in there where the puppies are susceptible because that's the way it works, you know, with that's the reason we booster, right? Every three yeah. to four weeks is that we know maternal antibodies are going to be waning at some point during that time. And there's going to be a window where our maternal antibodies have fallen off, but we haven't boosted yet since that happened. So we know that's why we want to be careful, right? Because gotcha. we know there's yeah. probably a window in there where they may have um, more susceptibility than we're comfortable with, but you know, 
certainly at least my experience and practice has always suggested that um, if you are someone who is taking your puppy religiously, like you should on the dates they're due for their boosters and getting their boosters, the chances that they're going to get parvo are quite low. Um, that's really good to know. That's, yeah. that's certainly reassuring. And I mean, and it makes sense in a way as well. You know, this is the pandemic puppy yeah. podcast. And yeah. Obviously, we're not epidemiologists or experts in COVID, right. but it seems similar in a lot of ways with some of these COVID vaccines where, yeah, you've only had the first of the two, but you, you are afforded a lot more protection. Right. You have some protection. Um, yeah. That's maybe a silver lining of the pandemic is I feel like um, maybe the general public as a whole is like way more knowledgeable about immunology than <laughs> So yeah, maybe, suddenly um, we're all yeah. we're all immunology hobbyists. <laughs> yeah, everybody's experts now on that. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. they, they know uh, people know a lot more than uh, maybe they did a year ago or two years ago. Yeah, I mean, the amount of time I've spent thinking about viral load and you know, yeah. like the amount of exposure that yeah. becomes risky, and you know. Obviously, you know, we can't just extrapolate that to every disease right. ever or veterinary stuff, but um, it, it's helpful to be, be so much more comfortable with the lingo. Right. Same concept. So, yeah. So, so to kind of bring that back around to um, the question that you asked, I went off on a little yeah. bit of a tangent there, but I felt like it was related. Super is, important. <laughs> is that I certainly don't think that we should be tempting fate right? By like taking our puppies yeah. to areas that we know are going to be super high risk, right? So what I tell my clients is, please don't take your unvaccinated puppies to the dog park, right? Yeah. <laughs> please don't yeah. take your unvaccinated puppies to, um, you know, even honestly, even like a park that's not a dog park, but you know, just someplace where you know, a lot of people walk their dogs, like random people from all over your city or whatever. Um, the way that you get exposed to Parvo is by, um, getting exposed to areas where infected dogs have pooped. So that's where yeah. the virus is. It's, it's in the feces. So basically any place that a whole bunch of strange dogs that you don't know anything about get together and go to the bathroom is probably not a super fabulous place to be walking your unvaccinated puppy. Um, so I do usually recommend that my clients steer clear of places like that. If there are kind of known spots where like, Oh, everybody takes their dogs there. Like probably don't, don't take your young puppy there. Um, yeah. even places like, you know, PetSmart and things, if you're going to go there, you may want to keep them in like the basket, you know, just cause again, that's a place where tons and tons of random dogs are in there and who knows. Right. Right. Um, but normal stuff, like there's no reason that you can't take your 10 week old puppy, like on a walk in your neighborhood. Right. There's yeah. no reason you can't take your 10 week old puppy, um, you know, to visit a friend, right. Who maybe either doesn't have pets or they have an adult dog that's healthy and vaccinated and puppy friendly, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. Um, you can absolutely sign up for a good puppy kindergarten class. If you have one in your area, that it's a good one to go to because that's going to be a really safe, low risk environment because hopefully your puppy kindergarten instructor is you know, doing a lot of disinfecting and making sure that all the puppies are vaccinated and all that kind of stuff. So um, those are all things that are totally fine to do. I tell people you can do, honestly, most of the normal things that you would do with, with an adult dog, with an unvaccinated puppy. You just don't want to do like the, the things that are in really high traffic dog areas that are kind yeah. of uncontrolled would be the main yeah. thing. Yeah, that, that, that tracks with, I think, what, you know, what my vet has told me and what we've been thinking through with Niffler um, yes. is, yeah, like, I've been going to a lot of the same places or trying to do, think about a place that is similar to somewhere where I want him to ultimately be able to handle, mm -hmm. but maybe we go to the low traffic version of that, which is both good for the viral, you know, risk uh, mm -hmm. And as far as socialization goes, because he's less likely to be overwhelmed. So we've been going yeah. to like the less popular hikes around Missoula yeah. where there's less poop and fewer <laughs> off-leash dogs. Um, yes. Montana leash laws are uh, yeah. a joke. Probably um, similar <laughs> to West Virginia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which honestly, most of the time I like. Um, yeah. Most of the time I'm all Definitely about the fact that I'm allowed. Yes. Yeah. I love being able to have my dog off-leash. Except for when I have my like baby puppy and right, I'm not right. sure about this dog that's rushing up to us. Right. So for sure, yeah, there are absolutely other reasons that we don't want to take a 10-week-old puppy to the dog park, right? <laughs> so yes. many reasons. Um, social reasons yeah. as well, but for sure health reasons there. Um, but yeah, I, I see sometimes that people veer too much in the opposite direction, right? And they're like, oh, I don't want my dog to like touch the grass until it's, you know, until it's finished with its vaccine so that it doesn't get parvo. And, and I get that, you know, I understand being scared yeah. about infectious diseases because because for sure that's super scary but mm -hmm. you know if you kind of take that to to the extreme um 
you kind of wind up creating more problems than you're solving in a lot of ways, right? We know that from an infectious disease standpoint, the absolute safest thing to do with your puppy would be to just keep it in like a bedroom, right? And not have contact with anybody except for you after you wash your hands and, and then they come out into the world. Exactly. Like like all that. And then they're totally not going to get parvo. However, they're also not going to be a behaviorally normal adult dog, right? You know, so there's there's trade-offs there. Um, And I think sometimes that's something we've been a bit guilty of as a profession is focusing too much on, you know, the infectious disease part of things and not enough on the behavioral side. But one of the points that um, ABSAB makes in its position statement about this is that actually um, young dogs, you know, like, you know, adolescent and young adult dogs actually um, are far more likely to be euthanized for behavior issues or, or you know, be surrendered to shelters and things than they are to die of infectious diseases. Yeah, so that's actually, yeah, that's yeah, like statistically, you know, that's yeah. actually a greater greater cause of death for them, which is kind of sobering, you know, and, and a sad thing, but yeah. definitely something that deserves our attention and, and means that maybe we should be focusing at least as much on um, making sure that we are recommending good practices that are going to set people up to have dogs that are behaviorally normal and healthy that can stay in their homes, right? And not be surrendered to shelters for behavior problems or euthanized for behavior problems. And that that's yeah. just as important in a lot of ways as making sure that they don't get parvo. Yeah, absolutely. And so I'm going to ask you a question that wasn't on the script and totally. it's not so much a dog question. It's, it's more of like a psychology <laughs> question. So I don't know if it's a fair one to ask, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you think that part of the reason we get so focused on like the parvo and the disease prevention is because if you if you were trying to socialize and your puppy got a disease you know you know right away and there's it's a big punisher um and you can draw a straight line there versus a year and a half from now if your puppy suddenly has uh, well not even suddenly but your puppy as they're going through social maturity they're dealing with aggression or anxiety or all these things you know you could you can't necessarily go and say it is a hundred percent because we under socialized. Like it right. could be genetics, it could be a bad experience. Totally. Like people don't that line is harder for people to draw. So that yeah. was an extremely leading question, yeah, but I'd love no, to hear for your sure, thoughts for on sure. it. Yeah, I think it's so much more concrete. You know, like you said, it's yeah. like, well, you know, we know with, with parvo or distemper, we don't talk as much about distemper because we just don't see it as much as we used to, and it's um, yeah. a little harder to catch from the environment, but certainly things like that too. Um, those you, like you said, you know, pretty much right away there. I mean, there's, there's some delay, there's an incubation period, but it's like a week or 10 days, right? It's, yeah. There's not a very long um, gap there between the thing that happened, you know, the cause and the effect. Whereas like you said, oftentimes we don't necessarily see obvious problems related to behavior stuff until dogs are reaching social maturity around 18 months or two years old. And for sure, it becomes a lot harder at that point to think back and go, oh, it's probably because we didn't go to, you know, we didn't take him a lot of places as a puppy. Like, I do think a lot of people um, end up making that connection. I know a lot of the um, behavior consults I do where we're talking about, you know, hey, why why do we think that we're having this issue? Because I think that's something people are curious about often, even if it's not directly relevant to how we're going to treat it. And oftentimes I have people say, oh, come to think of it, you're right. You know, we really didn't you know, we didn't, he didn't see, you know, never saw men with beards when he was a puppy. We just didn't really kind of stay home and it was winter time. And um, so I think a lot of times people do sort of make that connection later, especially once they have more information, maybe, or they have knowledge that they didn't have at that time. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's such a long period between, <laughs> like you said, whereas if it's like, oh man, my, my dog got parvo, <laughs> um, that's yeah. pretty immediate, you know, and that's pretty like, well, now he's in the vet's office and it costs $700 and, um, yeah. you know, the whole thing. And, and I, I do think it's a lot more concrete for people. Um, yeah. and even for, you know, for us as vets, right. It's more concrete yeah. for us too, right? Like it's a huge punisher for us to have puppies come yeah. in with parvo. We, nobody likes that. Um, no, well, I have a client who just, um, yeah, I was, we were coaching her through, she's got a Belgian Tavern and, you know, she wants to make sure he's relatively dog social. That's not a breed where you're guaranteed right. to just get that exactly. genetically. Um, <laughs> And I think one of the very first puppy playdates she did after we had our socialization talk, the puppy ended up tested, the other puppy tested yeah. positive for Parvo like oh, three no. days later. Oh, no. And her dog, you know, we dodged yeah. a bullet. It was totally fine yeah. for her dog. But it was just one of those things as a trainer where I was like, oh, my right. God. Like, oh, no. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, if 
two years from now, this puppy ended up having aggression issues with other dogs, we wouldn't necessarily blame me for it. Right. Wouldn't be but like, oh, if only you had recommended that fighting. Yeah. 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 It's not like that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. for sure. I think that's one of the things that makes it harder. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. It was. Yeah. And again, bullet dodged um, for us, at least. I hope yeah. the other puppy's okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. So actually, so this is another question that wasn't on our list, <laughs> but now I'm curious about, and I think Normally, this isn't a question I would ask, but I think because this is the Pandemic Puppy Podcast, and we're all so used to talking about, you know, the fomites of coronavirus, yes. or whether you can get it from a physical object, or whether you're going to get it from the air, aerosolization, all this stuff. What are some of, uh, I think that sets us up now um, for us lay people to be a little bit better uh, equipped to handle some of these questions than we might have been two years ago. So sure. you said that distemper is a little bit harder to catch from the environment. Could you walk us through what we know about what the highest risk ways to catch these different diseases are? Like if a if a dog poops somewhere and then that is picked up and it's a week later, is that still a high risk thing for Parvo? Or are you mostly just worried about like there's an actual pile of dog turds there? Right, right. And does right. your puppy have to go up and sniff it or eat right. it or roll in it? Or do they just have to like walk by right. and think about it? Right. And just think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a that's a good question, right? A lot of the parvo puppies that I do see at, at our office, um, the owners are often like, well, I can't figure out how we got it because you know, we don't go anywhere. Um, you know, it hasn't been anywhere. And the thing with parvo is that it is a very hardy virus that lasts a long okay. time in the environment and is very hard to kill. And that's okay. what is super crappy about it in a lot of ways. Gotcha. So it's passed mostly in the poop of infected dogs. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, you know, you have an infected dog that poops in the grass, right? And like you said, maybe the poop gets cleaned up or maybe it just goes away eventually as things do in nature, you know, mm -hmm. um, and it's gone after a while. But for sure, you have virus particles all over the place in, in that area, right? In the grass where it was. And then people walk through the grass, right? And then yeah. you have, now you have parvo virus particles on your shoes. And you don't know because there's no mm -hmm. visible poop there anymore. And you can't see the virus particles. Um, so very easy, even though, yes, that's how the virus is passed. And so even though you're like, well, I don't recall any incidents where my puppy ate anybody's poop, you know? Um, yeah. It doesn't have to be like that. It's literal, and that's why it's so easy for dogs to get parvo. And I think in mm -hmm. some ways we, you know, like I said, I, I don't think it's smart to tempt fate by, you know, taking unvaccinated puppies to places where we know are probably high risk, but there is potential for puppies anywhere, anytime to be exposed to parvo. Cause you just don't know, yeah. right. Just on your shoes or on, mm -hmm. you know, your other dog went outside for a walk and came in and might've had it on his paws, you know, and now it's on your carpet and now your puppy's yeah. exposed to it. Um, so I think it's sort of a good idea to just think of parvo as being kind of potentially everywhere. <laughs> gotcha. Um, if you're in an area where it's, it's a thing. A lot, yeah. like I said, I know in some parts of the country, they don't tend to see it much, um, which must must be awesome, <laughs> but we see it yeah. a ton where we are. So I tend to just assume that, you know, like anytime you go outside and do anything, you may have parvo viruses on your shoes when you come back in, because that's how it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's hard. Once it's in the environment, it's very hard to get rid of. Yeah. It lasts a long time. It can live for months or even years in, you know, in the environment. Um, and it's hard to get rid of, like, not all disinfectants will kill it. You know, you kind of have to either use disinfectants that are designed for that, um, or you can use diluted bleach, but there's not a whole lot of, you know, even a lot of the sort of normal disinfectants that you might use for other things aren't very effective against it. So that's wow. part of the reason that it's such a problem, Yikes. you know, like yeah. it's very contagious, very hard, very easy to pick up without even realizing where your puppy might've gotten exposed yeah. to it. Um, distemper is not so much that way. And that's probably Which one of the reasons. Good. Because yeah. distemper is also like extremely fatal, yes. right? Like Distemper is real bad. Yeah. yeah. Real bad. Parvo is obviously bad too, but an yeah. awful lot of those puppies will pull through with treatment. You know, not a hundred percent, you know, there's some that don't make it no matter what we do, but frequently with, with treatment, um, an awful lot of them make it. I feel like in my experience, the majority of them make it with treatment. Um, yeah. It's still expensive and not fun and the puppy's real sick for a few days and there's always the chance that they might not make it. So it's very scary, but yeah, you know, often, often has a happy ending. Distemper, yeah. um, like you said, is much more likely to be fatal. Um, 
you know, not, not impossible to survive distemper, but it's not super common. And a yeah, lot of the, the shelter I used to work for, I'm pretty sure we just euthanized dogs yeah, if they came it's in a, it's distemper a really positive. Disease. And a lot of them, even if they do survive, they may have you know, neurologic problems and things yeah. forward. Um, so it's yeah. a pretty nasty disease. And I'm, I'm super glad that we don't see much of it anymore. Um, yeah. At least not that we're aware of. But honestly, it's not as easy to test for as Parvo. But oh, um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, we have little snap tests for Parvo that we can do in the office. Takes mm-hmm. five minutes, you know, so it's super easy. And we don't really have the equivalent of that for distemper. Okay. But, um, yeah. but we don't honestly see cases where we're suspicious about it very often, you know, as far as the sets of symptoms and the age and vaccination history. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So we just don't see it a ton anymore. But it is not as easy to catch, right? Which is probably yeah. the only good thing about it. Um, the distemper virus d- is not nearly as hardy, does not live as long in the environment, um, as much is more easily killed by disinfectants. And so that means that for the most part, you're having to get it from, you know, either some kind of direct contact or, um, you know, being certainly in shelter type environments, it can be a problem, right? Because of aerosols and things you have, you know, dogs that are being housed in, you know, kennels near each other and and it can be spread that way, or it can be spread on fomites if it's, if it happens quickly, you know, if it's like, oh, you walked into this kennel and did stuff with this dog and then you walked into the next kennel, then that can be a problem. But it's not so much like, oh, you walked through the park where (laughs) a month ago a dog with distemper was here and now it's on your shoe. You know, like it doesn't live like that. Okay. Um, So yeah, that's probably the the biggest difference between them. Yeah, that's that's super, that's really, really good information. And I'm I'm not sure if that's something that is communicated about enough. Um, Probably not. I didn't know it. Yeah. yeah, I don't know that it gets talked about as much, but those are good questions, right? Because it yeah. is, I think it makes you maybe feel like you have a little more control too, if you understand yeah. where it comes from. It's not just like, oh, it was magic, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. oh, it came down out of the air and infected my dog, you know, like, um, it's good, you know, useful to know like, well, this is, this is how it works. So anything we can do to kind of minimize that or be aware of exposure risks there um, is a good thing to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then um, rabies, I think most people are pretty familiar with how you get that, but that's bites. Rabies, yeah, rabies is another yeah, super bad disease. <laughs> super, super yeah. bad, um, 100% fatal, essentially. You know, you yeah. can find case reports, right? But basically, Yeah, there's like three people. Yeah, like three people. Dog. Yeah, so no. Oh, so no, basically 100% fatal. Um, yeah. And a disease that your dog can give to people. So obviously that's taken very yeah. seriously by health departments and things. And that honestly probably is kind of a good thing to at least mention if we're talking about infectious diseases and puppies. Um, Puppies, it depends a little bit on your state laws, but in in most states, I would say, I know at least in West Virginia, um, puppies have to be 12 weeks old to be vaccinated for rabies. Mm -hmm. Usually we do it with the last set of vaccines when they're about 16 weeks old. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty uncommon that puppies younger than that are going to find themselves in a situation where rabies exposure is a concern because it does basically have to be a bite. Um, so not yeah. like casual exposure, not like, oh, my dog, you know, went for a walk in the woods and a week ago an infected raccoon was here and it pooped. Like, no, that's not a rabies exposure. It has to be yeah. a direct, you know, pretty much has to be a bite, um, you know, with some very, very few exceptions to that. So, yeah. you know, unless you're 12, but, but it happens occasionally, right? If your 12 week old puppy gets attacked by a raccoon yeah. in your backyard, um, before it's rabies vaccinated, that can actually be a huge problem. <laughs> So that yeah, is, yeah, or a bat yeah. flies down your chimney right. that used to happen that in my house in too. Wisconsin yep. <laughs> all the yeah, time. Yeah, for sure. Right, and that can be a risk. Like if you if you wake up in the morning, because this happens with people too sometimes, right? Yeah. You wake up and you're like, oh, there's a bat in our bedroom. Um, yeah. That's a problem because that means like you and if you have small children in the house and your pets like are all potentially exposed because bats can bite you and you don't know, you know, if they've been yeah. around. Um so the moral of that story is if you can try to catch or try to have animal control come and get the bat because <laughs> you really yeah. need to know if the bat is rabies positive or not. Cause if it is, then everybody's got a problem. Um, yeah. Then you have to go through post-exposure prophylaxis and quarantine for the animals and yeah. it's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, I do think it is a smart idea to vaccinate your puppy for rabies kind of at the usual age, you know, pretty close to that yeah. minimum age when they can do it. I know that, um, Sometimes we'll encounter, um, you know, sometimes breeders and things will advise clients not to vaccinate for rabies until they're six months old or a year old Mm -hmm. or something like that. 
And, um, you know, certainly I'm sensitive to concerns about, you know, vaccine reactions and things like that, but whew, man, that's a, that's a gamble. You know, yeah. if you're, if you're out there in the world with a, a six month old puppy or a 10 month old puppy, that's never been vaccinated for rabies, man, if something happens, you know, yeah. all it takes is one fight with a raccoon or, you know, yeah. something that happens. And, and now you're just, you've got big problems and you've either got to quarantine your dog for an extended period of time, or you have to mm-hmm. euthanize or, you know, it's a whole, it's a whole thing. So, yeah. um, even yeah, though really, I, really I think we don't think about rabies as much, you know, that thankfully it's rare, right. Because of vaccinations, because, you know, we take that really seriously from a public health standpoint. Um, but it's out there. We see it yeah. um, occasionally. We, yeah. Uh, well, and I'm glad that we keep saying, um, uh, raccoons because i think that helps people who might kind of be like well i'm not taking my dog out into the wilderness it's like well right. no because right, raccoons like, have are you ever had a raccoon in your urban. backyard yeah like yeah yeah happens yeah the main the big carriers for rabies in this country are uh, raccoons uh foxes bats coyotes i want to say and skunks yeah i think those are the yeah. main five um yeah. so for sure you know it's it's pretty common for a lot of people to encounter you know certainly skunks and raccoons in urban yeah. areas, you know, just out in your yard when you let your dog out to go to the bathroom. So, you know, if you think about that kind of scenario that your dog went out to pee, got into a fight with a raccoon, which then took off into the night. So not going to be recovered for testing and your dog has bite wounds on it. Um, you know, if your dog is not rabies vaccinated, that's actually a huge problem. Like, yeah. yeah, that's potentially life-threatening problem for your family and for your dog. And, you know, yeah, it's a whole it's thing. Horrible. Yeah. And I yeah. do think that's an important, I think people get complacent about rabies um, because yeah. because people feel like, oh, well, you know, that was like, that happened like back in Old Yeller, like, yeah. you know, back in the day, like we don't have that anymore. Like, no, we, we totally do. Um, we yeah. see, we don't see many domestic animals, thankfully, infected with rabies because vaccinations very widespread, even, even like where, I, where we are in relatively rural areas, most people vaccinate for rabies, I would say. Yeah. Um, but we do see wildlife that comes up positive. You know, oh, yeah. like yeah, not uncommonly, you know, we have it, yeah. we have it in the area. So for sure, if your dog is out there unvaccinated, that's a risk. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, yeah. I was, I was, rabies was something I was really concerned about. Um, I mean, I'm kind of worried about everything. Yeah, I'm a very anxious puppy parent, <laughs> <laughs> which is why I have an entire podcast where I just get to talk totally, to people yeah, about yeah. my puppy anxiety. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, Barley and I, my adult dog, do conservation detection dog work, and some of the, a lot of the jobs involve, um, you know, we're obviously in contact with tons of wild animals, and a, a huge part of conservation dog work is often um, doing windmill research, um, where <laughs> you're doing the environmental impact. So, you know, I'm training my dogs to approach bat carcasses. Yeah, yeah, so um, right, they definitely need to be current on their vaccines. Yeah. Because for sure, something like handling a bat carcass, like in their mouth, right? That could could be an exposure, potentially. That's not the traditional like bite type exposure, but there's like saliva, there's contact with mucous membranes and that can happen. Yeah. And I'm sure it's not all that common, but you could imagine also a bat that's not quite dead yet. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Right. And dogs pick things up, you know, dogs are gross. They're like, hey, what's that? They pick it up in their mouth and there you go. Like that's potentially rabies exposure. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, my my dogs played catch with a squirrel skull this morning. I have no <laughs> idea where it came from. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Good for them. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So, um, before we go to, we're gonna take a quick break, but I wanted to ask if if you have any modifications to what you recommend to your clients for socialization, um, that maybe COVID specific. Like, are there any things that you're telling people specifically? to help them through um, COVID restrictions? Yeah, I do think COVID has made it a little bit more challenging in a lot of ways. Maybe that's the understatement Mm -hmm. of the year, right? (laughs) Everything a little bit more challenging. Um, Certainly it's made it so that like group classes and things may be not, you know, not a feasible option in your area, depending Mm -hmm. on what people are doing. So you might not be able to go to puppy kindergarten. You might not be able... um, again, depending on what's what's happening in your area to do things like going to PetSmart and things if they're not, you know, having people in, you know, that can be an issue. The good thing though, is that I feel like most of the things that we tend to do with our puppies, we can still do, right? Like we can certainly yeah. still go for walks outside and see things. And one sort of um, thing that gets misunderstood a lot about socialization, I think, is it doesn't mean you have to have direct interaction with yeah. with all these things, right? It, it just means the puppy needs to like see them and be aware that they exist and 
and that they're, you know, nothing bad happens around them and it's fine. So, you know, it's fine for your puppy to just kind of walk by and see people and not necessarily go up to every person and say hi. It's actually probably better <laughs> in a lot of ways <laughs> to just kind of walk by and be like, oh, there's there's neighbor Tom over there mowing his yard, you know, we'll wave mm-hmm. at him and go on. Um, and certainly we can still do all that kind of stuff even with COVID going on. So I think that, you know, you may not be able to visit people as easily, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so that you might have to be a little creative, but you could probably still go to somebody's house and hang out outside, you know, and at a distance and yeah. in lawn chairs or something, if you wanted to do that. And honestly, the, you get a lot of, a lot of the same benefit just from being in the area at a distance and letting your puppy yeah. take it in than as you do from, from having them walk directly up to everything and, and interact with it or interact with lots of strangers. Um, so I don't think that's maybe as much of a problem as people might think for yeah. that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm cognizant of Montana has very, very loose COVID restrictions. Um, and, you know, I know that if we have listeners in Canada, they might have very, very different restrictions. Like, right. I mean, I, if I wanted, I can dine unmasked indoors in a restaurant tonight. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Or go, our bars, we actually just, well, our bars used to close at 10 p.m. and now they're open as late as they want um, yeah. because yeah. I was yeah. hurting business. Yeah. So anyway, with Montana, I know that I, I have a lot more freedom than many, some of our listeners may. And I know that if we have especially international listeners, like. Right. Maybe very different in their area. It might be very different. Um, and, you know, if you're only allowed of your, out of your house for an hour of outdoor exercise yeah, a day, for sure. that trying to figure hard. out how to make that count. Um, for sure. For it's, sure. You know, that is a definitely more yeah, challenging. Yeah, that makes it much more challenging. And I think that if yeah. you're in that type of situation, um, a lot will depend on the specifics, right? As far as if you have restrictions on, you yeah. know, even geographically where you're allowed to go or, you know, how long you're allowed to be outside the house. But I would say in general... Um, you know, you could at least look at maybe trying to go someplace slightly different every day, even if it's just like, Hey, we walked in this direction from the house today and we walked in a different direction from the house tomorrow. And, um, you know, if you're allowed to go further than that geographically, even just going, going to a different place, even if it's not far, you know, even if it's just like the next neighborhood over or something like that and and taking your hour long walk over there is still a pretty worthwhile thing to do. Yeah. And I know I even, you know, I obviously, as I said, don't have those restrictions, but you know, I only have so much time a day For sure. where I can just yeah. kind of go, go socialize. Yeah. Yeah. But I've, you know, I've just been trying to go somewhere a little different. Like one day yeah. we might go and drive over to, uh, you know, there's a, ro- a little like walking path right along um, Highway 93. So it's mm-hmm. like big semis going by. It's 70, yeah. 80 miles an hour. Yeah, that's a good point. And then another day we can go to a gas station when all the high schoolers are out um, yeah. doing whatever high schoolers do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then just another day we go to a watch, right? You don't have to yeah. interact with high schoolers. So, but you can just be, no. you can just be a crowd. You probably yeah. don't want to. Like I actually just realized, I don't think I've taken Niffler to like a suburban area yet. Mm-hmm. Like we've done urban and we've done rural, but I don't know if we've done kind of like a big open neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and yeah, just a little different every day. Like you'll get there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good takeaway. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a quick ad break and then come back to take Uh, to talk a little bit more about some other puppy problems. We're mostly switching gears away from vaccination at this point. This podcast is supported by the Puppy Raising Blueprint course, which you can find at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. In this course, which is partnered between Journey Dog Training and the Canine of Mine, I guide you through everything from common problem behaviors like biting and potty training to the humane hierarchy of dog training. It's always available on a self-study basis at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint. As a new puppy owner, I know how often we're cleaning up. While there's no replacement for management, supervision, and training, Clean Carl's has my back for the times that I slip up and Niffler has an accident. Clean Carl's pet mess products get rid of stains and odors from dog poop and cat pee and everything in between without any added scents so your house won't smell like poop or cleaning products. Plus, they're safe to use around both pets and kids. Next time your furry friend has an accident, try Clean Carl's pet mess zapper and remover. Use the code JOURNEY10 and get 10% off your first order. Just head over to cleancarls.com and use code JOURNEY10 at checkout. Okay, so let's switch gears a bit to talk about some other puppy problems. Um, What sort of... 
behavior patterns might set off your like veterinary senses for more investigation, like particularly things where people might come to their trainers and say, hey, we're having problems with X. And you as a veterinarian and trainer, you've got both mm-hmm. of those hats, would say, ooh, actually, I think I need to swap out for my veterinary hat here. Yeah, yeah. So like, um, meaning behavior things that might actually indicate like a medical problem of some kind or... Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, I would say that probably some of the common things I would think about would be puppies that are having house training issues sometimes um, can be Mm -hmm. some of those puppies, not all of them for sure, but um, some of them can have urinary issues of some kind, right? Like they might have a urinary tract infection or they might have, um, you know, something that's not quite normal about the way their plumbing is hooked up internally such that it's hard for them to hold their pee. So with house training, and that can be hard for people to sort out, right? Because I find that a lot of clients are surprised at how much normal puppies pee or like how often. Yes. (laughs) I have a lot of clients who come in and they're like, oh, my eight week old puppy, he pees like all the time. And I'm like, well, like how much, how much are we talking about? Like, well, like. I mean, every like half an hour or so, I'm like, oh, that's normal. (laughs) You'd be going out more often than that. Um, So, you know, that can be a hard line sometimes for people to figure out like, well, how much is too much or what's abnormal? Yeah. In general, I would tend to think about a medical issue with house training. If, for example, you take your puppy out and they pee and then they come straight back in and immediately pee again. Right. Not necessarily. I've seen normal puppies do that too, just for, for puppy reasons, but that sometimes can be kind of a red flag. Like, well, they just went and you would think their bladder should be pretty empty and yet they came in and then they just went right again. Or if you take them out and they're peeing um, like multiple times in multiple places, right? Because even with males, if we're talking about a puppy, like a eight or 10 week old puppy, usually the marking stuff hasn't really kicked in much at that point. Um, So they don't tend to do that as much. It tends to just be more like, oh, I need to pee, so I'll pee. So it's a little bit less common, um, and certainly with females, to see them, you know, squatting or or trying to go in, you know, four or five different places in the space of five minutes outside. That can be a bit of a red flag. Um, Or if they're having issues with, like, leaking urine while they're sleeping, Mm-hmm. or dribbling while they're walking. And I do hear that sometimes with clients like, oh, I just can't get this, you know, puppy house trained. Or, you know, she, she just pees in her sleep all the time. Like, oh, that's not a house training problem. Yeah. Um, so yeah, normal, normal dogs should not pee in their sleep. Um, mm-hmm. They should not pee without realizing it. So if you're getting peeing that's happening without posturing, without the dog apparently realizing that it's happening, that's usually a red flag that there's something going on there medically that we need to look at. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So I would say that's, that's a big thing. Um, with puppies specifically, I'm trying to think what else there might be that would be, we don't fortunately see too many, um, you know, medical issues in puppies that impact behavior as much as we do in older dogs. You know, for yeah. sure, older dogs, we see a lot of things like pain and, um, you know, even illnesses, you know, like different types of things that can affect it. Um, so I would say that's probably the biggest thing with puppies in particular specifically that I would tend to think about most of the medical slash behavior stuff I deal with in young puppies is house training related. Um, So a lot of it's teasing out whether we think there's an actual problem or not. Yeah. The only other one that I can kind of think of with as a, as a trainer that I will sometimes say like, yeah, let's talk to your vet would be um, eating of non-food objects. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. You know, like sometimes like, Oh, your puppy's eating like the wrapper that a hamburger was in. Yeah. Pretty normal. Yeah. Um, But your puppy is kind of like compulsively eating a lot of socks. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously that can also be behavioral, but like. Right. Could be. (laughs) Yes. Uh, They smell delicious. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, when or how could that be veterinary related? Um, I know I've heard some things about that potentially being like sometimes there's some GI issues related to that or. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So it is, it is true that sometimes pica, which is, you know, what we call it when animals are eating, um, non-food items, (laughs) like items that are clearly not food. Um, that absolutely can be related to GI problems, like GI discomfort of some kind, which is kind of cool and random, right? It's kind of, that seems counterintuitive, right? Like why, why, if you felt nauseous or if you had a stomach ache, would that make you like want to eat wood chips, 
right? Like, well, we don't know. Yeah. Um, we can't really relate to that maybe, but it is a thing. And it, uh, so for sure, if we have a puppy that seems really intent on wanting to consume a lot of things that are not food, then that's something that at least should be on the radar. And I yeah. do think that can be hard to separate out, right? Because I have also seen lots of um, puppies who were perfectly physically normal, who just really had a hobby of eating random things that they shouldn't yep. eat, you know, <laughs> they, they just do that, um, with, you know, not, not great. But for sure, if you have that, especially in conjunction with like, oh, they're a picky eater, right? Or like, oh, I'm having trouble getting them to gain weight, you know, yeah. or oh, we have like off and on diarrhea issues, or sometimes he vomits. Like if there's any other symptom, and a lot of times I will hone in and ask some pointed questions yeah. about that other stuff. And if, especially if there's anything else that's like, oh, that could also be kind of GI related, that may pique our interest about whether we might have some sort of um, sometimes kind of low-level GI issue that it's often hard to know, right? If yeah. our dogs have GI issues, if they're not overtly vomiting um, or having diarrhea all the time. But as we can, we know, right? Like you can feel crappy and nauseous without vomiting. Oh, you know? yeah. Um, yeah. And I do think there are certainly dogs out there who, you know, turns out sometimes once we get things diagnosed have probably feeling kind of low-level nauseous for months or years, you know, and just oh, nobody God, really knew because they weren't puking. Um, yeah. you know, and they were still going about their business, but once we got them on a food that agreed with them or we addressed their inflammatory bowel disease with medication or whatever, you know, their owner is like, Oh wow. I never knew that he like, now he's really playful. Like I always just thought he just wasn't that kind of dog, but you know, now he wants to play and he's got all this energy, you know, like, so I think sometimes there is stuff going on under the surface that we just don't know about if there aren't really overt signs because they can't tell us. But yeah. for sure, um, for sure, if you have a puppy who seems super intent on consuming things that are not food, that's at least something that you may want to talk to your vet about. And, and especially if you note any other red flags now that you're thinking about it, you know, that make mm -hmm. you think, oh, maybe there is something GI related going on. Um, because I would say in general, and this is what I what I often tell my clients, because um, I have a lot of people who are super afraid to let their puppies chew on, you know, boxes or, you know, tear up toys or things like that, you know, because they're afraid they're going to eat parts of them. And you do have to watch, right? Because some yes. dogs do. And if your dog is a dog who's going to consume those things, then I agree we shouldn't be allowing that to happen. But many dogs, I would say the majority of, of puppies and dogs that I see um, just like to rip stuff up. They don't necessarily consume it. Yeah. So I think that it's a little bit less common than people might think at first glance for dogs to actually um, consume large amounts of things that are not food. Not that it doesn't happen. Not that there aren't perfectly yeah. normal labs out there who just do that. Um, but it's, it's, I think, I feel like that's a bit the exception and not the rule. Um, most puppies really like to tear stuff up and they might yeah. kind of swallow small parts of things just incidentally without really meaning to, but it is a little bit yeah. less common for them to make a concerted effort to like consume things um, that aren't yeah. food. So yeah, that's a good point too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I've been letting my puppy shred junk mail Yeah, um, and yeah, he loves it. It makes a yeah. mess. That's, yeah. You know, yeah, but, you know, it's a good enrichment thing, but yeah, I have a, a lot of people are really scared if I suggest that sort of thing. Um, they're like, Oh, yeah. well, won't he eat it? And I'm like, well, he, he might, so you should watch, like you should definitely yeah. supervise and see, but, but most dogs don't, um, they just like to rip it up. And if he falls into that category, then that's a perfectly harmless, um, free enrichment activity that you have at your disposal. Right. You don't mind cleaning yeah, up even, the shredded paper. I've always thought of, you know, yeah, like a little bit of paper here and there. It's yeah, not gonna no, hurt. that's not going to hurt anything. If he accidentally yeah. swallows a little bit of paper, that's not a big deal. If he yeah, is like intent on not... consuming the entire box, that's a problem. Yes. But if he, gets, yeah. if he swallows a few little bits of cardboard, those will come right on out. No biggie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, and obviously you want to make sure about like, hunks of tape on your Amazon yeah. box or if you've got a big box that was stapled together. Right, right. For sure, you know, but, within bounds of reason, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah exercise common it. sense here like we do with everything. <laughs> yes, but, but yeah, I do think that's a good point um, that I think it's people often kind of don't separate it out that way in their head maybe or don't realize is that it's, mm -hmm. I would agree that it's not, not as normal as people might think for puppies to actually eat large amounts of things that are not food. Yeah, yeah, that makes Unless a lot of sense. <laughs> Unless they're left, yeah, golden. Yeah. <laughs> um, our retriever friends. <laughs> yeah, our retriever friends are like, yeah, my dog consumes everything. Yeah, that's, sorry, yeah, sorry. sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
are there any other things that people might kind of see? Because I know, you know, as a trainer, I'm always saying like, okay, if you're seeing sudden behavior changes or, yeah. um, you know, big behavior changes, you know, talk to your vet about that. What are, but then the exception being, for me at least, if I'm seeing big or sudden-ish behavior changes under the age of like two or three years, those are relatively normal-ish. Can you talk to us a little bit? And I know we've got other people that we're going to be bringing on that are like developmental yeah. state experts, but you know, yeah. because we haven't recorded that with them yet, like, can you give us any primers on like kind of normal changes throughout adolescent social maturity that people might be like, oh my God, my puppy's gone crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's going yeah, on? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I'll try not to step on any toes here of, of people who specialize in this area and, and therefore, you know, can speak on it better than I can. But yeah. um, in general, for sure, there are some kind of normal and expected changes that you might see in behavior as, as puppies and adolescents grow. So there are, and this is... I'll, I'll be interested to see what your developmental people have to say about this because I know it's somewhat <laughs> yeah. controversial, but you know, the idea of fear periods, right? Yeah. Where it, it does appear that there seem to be kind of concrete periods of time that, that we often see in puppies where for whatever reason, for a couple of weeks or so, they just seem to be more bothered by things, right? Like stuff yeah. that wasn't bothering them last week. And now all of a sudden they're like, Oh, that's a trash can. Yeah. That's, and you're like, it was there. Like it's been there your whole life, but they're like, well, it looks sketchy today. Um, <sighs> and you know, and they'll do that right for maybe a week or two at a time. They'll just be like, Oh, everything's real sketchy. Um, so that kind of thing can be normal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, I do, you know, sometimes people panic about that, right? Especially maybe not sort of the, the average pet dog client as much, but like people who are in dog sports or people who are kind of um, more like into the, the whole process of like, you know, socialization and they have plans for the puppy and all that. We tend to panic a little bit like, ah, my dog's going to have fear issues because he growled at the trash can today and we went for a walk. Um, and I yeah. think for me, the big thing there is watch it, right? If you see that happening. But don't, don't freak out right away because it may just resolve on its own after a week or two if you don't make a big deal about it. Um, so usually that's kind of my advice to people if they're seeing that happen is like, don't make a big deal. Don't be like, oh my God, we have to put a trash can in our living room and we have to work on it every night and teach them that it's like really just, you know, take a deep breath and just don't worry about it and just go about your life as usual for a week or two and see if it just goes away because often it does, right? If it's that, that fear period sort of thing mm -hmm. that we often talk about. Um, whatever exactly that might mean when you know, yeah. that label or putting on things. Um, it does appear that, that it's not uncommon for puppies and adolescents to, to go through that sometimes and often it resolves. So with that kind of stuff, my sort of rule of thumb is if it's gone on for more than a couple of weeks or so and doesn't seem to be getting any better, or especially if the trend is like that it's getting worse, yeah. because usually if you're going to have an actual problem, that's kind of how it goes. It's like it starts out with you know, something kind of like, oh, that's weird. And then it escalates, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if you feel like there's a pattern here and you're like, oh, this is not going well, then I would, I would try to get some help with that and try to intervene sooner yeah. rather than later. You know, I wouldn't let it go on for six months, just getting worse and worse, hoping that it's going to go away. On <laughs> yeah. Hoping it's just a long fear period. Right? Just a really long, it lasted from the time he was six months till now he's two. We're still waiting. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, so that's not a fear period anymore. Um, but yeah, it has to do with the length of time, I think, that you're seeing it. And it has to do with what the trend is, right? If it's escalating yeah. or if it's just kind of like, oh, he's been a little spooky about things this week. Let's just see what happens. Um, so that's one that I think is good for people to be aware of. Yeah. And then as far as development in general, kind of coming out of puppyhood and adolescence and getting towards social maturity, I think people are often surprised at what they perceive as a sudden behavior change in their dog when they get to be often maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, maybe two years old. Mm -hmm. um, very often when I do behavior consults for dogs that are fear aggressive to strangers or, you know, have some variant of leash reactivity or something like that, the owner's perception is that it started around then right? Like, well, it started when he was about 18 months old and he never did it before then. It was really sudden. But then when you dig back into the history, we find, well, he's always been, he's never been comfortable, right? Like he's never mm. been comfortable with strangers. He's never wanted to interact with strangers. He's always, you know, hidden behind the owner when people come around or he's hidden and cowered in his cage when visitors come. 
And so the owner perceives it as a sudden behavior change. And, you know, it is a behavior change. Um, but now their strategy has changed, right? As they, gotcha. they get a little yeah. braver with social maturity. And now the 18-month-old dog is charging visitors and barking at them and, and all that. But it's not, it's, not a it's not as sudden a change as the owner perceives it often. Um, yeah. It's just kind of a switch in strategy as the dog has gotten older. Yeah. So that's really common um, that often people are kind of confused by that. I find in, in my consults where they're like, I just don't understand. You know, he was never like this. He was fine. He was always fine. And then we have to kind of go back and talk about, well, I'm not sure he was always fine. You know, I, right. think, I think the evidence suggests that he maybe was never fine, but he was dealing with it differently until recently. And that's yeah. common, you know, because of the way that, you know, the dog's mature. So that's probably the other big common scenario that I see. Yeah. Yeah. That all makes a lot of sense. And um, I mean, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you know, physical health and how that can interplay with behaviors, both for, for, I mean, literally like myself as a human being and dogs and, you know, just thinking about if, if you couldn't talk to me, I'm sure there are days where you're like, she seems to be going through a fear period. <laughs> it's like, right, right. Well, yeah, I was nauseous and stressed yeah. about COVID and, you know, yeah. all of a sudden then like normal things happening on the street, I was a jerk about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, it'd be, it'll be really interesting to talk to our developmental um, people or, you know, even going through in the future where, because, uh, yeah, like, do fear periods correspond with any sort of, like, a period of growth or teething or anything mm -hmm. where it's just like, well, they're just kind of jumpy and irritable because right. of something happening. Right, Could that be because they're uncomfortable? Yeah. Yeah, like, sure. is it purely neurological or is it related to something yeah. else developmental? And I, yeah. honest, I have no idea. So hopefully Yeah, I think that's else a really interesting something. question, right? I think yeah. there's probably, I think probably the, the take home on that is that there are probably a lot more cases than we're aware of where that is playing a role to some yeah. degree, because we know that we're really only catching the physical stuff. That's pretty obvious, you know, where there's like a clear yeah. obvious, like, Oh, he's vomiting, you know, or, Oh, he's <laughs> limping. Right. You know, but yeah. like with us, right. We can have orthopedic issues that make us sore and we don't necessarily like, we're not hopping around on one leg. You know, yeah. <laughs> so like, no, I've, I've had a persistent, that you were sore, you know, unless they exactly. were looking really closely. But that can absolutely yeah. affect your behavior. Yeah, no, I, I pulled a, a like a hip muscle um, mm -hmm. around this time last year, and it still hurts most days. But I don't have a limp. I'm still able right. to go for a run. Right. I'm still able to do any everything. You might, if you watched me closely all day, you might say mm -hmm. like, yeah, she does kind of stand a little funny on it, or you'll catch me mm -hmm. stretching it a lot. Yeah. But unless you were really, really like observing me or you know asking me, yeah. you would have no idea. Yeah, um, it's an alien with a pet. They would yeah. have no idea, right? They'd no, be like, oh, yeah, this and, is and, and the pain, like, it's it's quite painful, yeah. but it's still nowhere near painful enough to make me limp. Right. Yep. And I think there's probably all kinds of stuff like that that flies under the radar for us. Um, mm -hmm. You know, really observant owners probably catch more of it than you know than sort of the average dog owner who maybe just doesn't doesn't watch that closely because they've got you know yeah. other stuff that they're dealing with and they <laughs> don't think about it and you know which is normal. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think probably even people who are pretty darn observant about their dogs, there's a lot that we just don't know that they don't really oh, show yeah. any outward signs of. Yeah. And even, you know, like I'll try to do like rub downs of my dogs after big workouts or whatever. But again, uh, I mean, I know I've had plenty of injuries where I didn't limp. Yeah. And if you gave me a massage or tried to rub me down or stretch me out, like you wouldn't have found it. You know, I tore yeah. my MCL yeah. and it only showed up when I was walking downstairs and yeah. you could palpate my knee all day and you'd never find it. Yep. Yep. All kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. That we probably just don't know about. Um, one yeah. of the things that, that I think is interesting and not, like I said, less in puppies, but just because it's, we don't tend to see as many of the like chronic subtle, um, yeah you know, physical problems in puppies as we do in like older dogs with arthritis or other types of chronic orthopedic issues are really common or even things like dental pain, you know, that we probably miss a lot. Um, is that if we're having a dog that, you know, that has some kind of new weird behavior change or like they've suddenly gotten worse with their anxiety issues or aggression or something like that, um, never hurts to do a trial course with some pain medication for a couple of weeks yeah. or so and just see, sometimes we're surprised at what we see yeah. with that. You know, because oftentimes it's hard. We may not be able to diagnose it 
right? We may not be able to pin it down and say, oh, here's the problem. Because like you said, the dog may not show signs of it on a physical exam. And a lot of dogs in the clinic are very anxious and tense. So you can't tell anyway, you know, you're like, well, he's he's vibrating the whole time with anxiety that I'm like, even in the same room as him. So I really can't tell if he's particularly tense or sore anywhere in particular, because he's tense everywhere the whole time. Um, So there's only so much we can tell on a physical exam with that. And things like x-rays are not very sensitive at all, you know, for like, we can tell if something's broken, you know, or like if it's like, oh, there's terrible arthritis in this joint. Um, But x-rays are not helpful, not very helpful at all for minor, like, you know, or like low level chronic soft tissue type stuff, you know, like you're not going to see that on x-rays. You may very well not find it on a physical exam. The dog may not show any obvious signs of it. So you're, you're probably just not going to find it short of, you know, sometimes if you take your dog to like a sports medicine specialist or something where they're really good at, you know, pinning down and eliciting certain types of pain. Um, but for most of us in general practice, there's only so much we can do. With right, that. Yeah. And you're like, I don't know, I believe you that something doesn't seem right, but don't know. Um, so in that case, there's, you know, often nothing wrong with saying, well, what if we put him on some pain meds for a couple of weeks and just see if it improves, you know, see if we see any change mm-hmm. in his behavior. Um, and sometimes that's kind of interesting. Sometimes we do. So I suspect yeah. that there are probably more cases than we realize where that's playing a role when we just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And I, I mean, it's, I love talking to you about this sort of stuff. <laughs> it's just like, it's so fascinating and also makes me like, wow, I'm kind of glad I'm not a vet. You have a really hard job. <laughs> it's hard job. <laughs> Very hard. Um, okay, so I have one Patreon question for you, and then I just wanted to ask, like, do you have anything that you wanted to add or talk about that we haven't touched on yet? I don't think so. I think we've hit most of the things that along the way, you know, that I, I thought were um, important and interesting to talk about about this topic. It's been, I feel like we've had a good discussion. Yeah. <laughs> had some fun tangents, too. We went off on a whole infectious disease thing. As a, you know, that was a bonus. So. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Um, cool. Okay, so the Patreon question we have this week is that someone writes, they recently heard that teenage puppies often regress in potty training a little bit because growing so much makes them thirsty and then they need to go to the bathroom more often. Is that true or anything that you've heard of? That is, um, that's an interesting question, right? So I would say in general that... I don't know that we have evidence that adolescent dogs necessarily drink more than other age groups. Um, Young puppies Mm do, actually, which is, you know, kind of an interesting point. Um, Up until about 12 weeks of age, puppies are, their kidneys actually are not totally finished developing and are actually not capable of concentrating their urine as much as adult dogs do. Yeah, or even older, you know, older puppies and adolescents. So for that reason, they do drink more. And um, that's one of the reasons that I think people perceive the puppies pee a lot, (laughs) right? They do. Um, There are other reasons also, right? Like they just don't have very good bladder control yet and their bladders are small. And also they don't know that they shouldn't just pee wherever they need to pee because they're maybe. Um, So many reasons there, but that is one biological reason that young puppies seem to pee a lot is that they don't concentrate their urine very well. But after they get to be, you know, by the time a puppy's four or five months old, they should have normal concentrating ability. Um, So that that part should be pretty much resolved. I could certainly see maybe an argument that adolescent dogs mostly are pretty active, right? I would say if we were going to make generalizations. Mm -hmm. Um, Adolescent dogs tend to exercise a lot. They're very playful. They're very busy, often doing things. And so for sure, that can can lead to more drinking, right? A dog that's active doing stuff all day is going to drink more water than a dog who lays on the couch Mm -hmm. while you watch Netflix. Um, so for sure, in that sense, I think we might we might be able to say that adolescent dogs on average drink more than, you know, a five-year-old adult dog who sure. isn't as active. Um, so that can certainly play a role. I do think a lot of why we tend to see more potty accidents in adolescent dogs may also have to do with the fact that we know learning in general is not as linear as we would like it to be, right? And just because like, well, the puppy was doing great last week and seemed to know what this house training stuff was about this week. He acts like it's a new concept. Um, that's kind of normal. And that's kind of something that happens with training of all kinds, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. 
you know, whether it's basic obedience stuff or it's high level competition stuff, or, you know, we've all been there. Like you, you we remember we learned this, you were perfect at it last week. And the dog's like, I have never heard this word before in my existence. Yeah. Um, so that's normal as frustrating and like weird as it is to us, that is 100% normal part of learning. And I think that trips people up a bit in adolescence that they're like, but he was doing it last week. And I'm always like, I know, but this week he's not. But now he's not. <laughs> now he's not. <laughs> um, so I think that's part of it. And I think that often adolescence is also around the time that people are starting to relax their management and supervision mm -hmm. when it comes to house training, because they feel like, oh, well, I think he's got it. We'll just, you know, start, start backing off a bit on supervision and letting him have more freedom and um, sometimes it turns out that that might've been a little too soon. <laughs> so I think yeah. that's another reason that sometimes we see like, oh, my six month old puppy or my eight month old puppy is having house training accidents um, is because maybe now we're not watching them as closely and confining them as much as we were when they were 16 weeks. So yeah, I think the drinking is interesting, um, but, but that's probably the biggest possible connection I can see is that if they're more active and doing more stuff, then certainly they might drink more and hence have to pee more. But there really shouldn't be like a like a biological reason, you know, like there is in younger puppies that they mm -hmm. should they should have to pee more or drink more. Although maybe that's kind of splitting hairs and it doesn't matter. But it's an interesting question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it it is an interesting one, and it's yeah. I, I just learned a lot, so <laughs> I'm glad. Thank you to our patrons for asking good questions. Yeah, sure. So. Over the next couple episodes, we're going to cover puzzle toys and enrichment. We do have our developmental stages episode upcoming, and hopefully we're going to have an episode on the puppy blues um, coming up soon. So make sure you stay tuned for all of that. Um, Jen, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you? Yeah, I have a blog page that is Dr. Jen's Dog Blog. Um, DrJen'sDogBlog.com is the address, so pretty easy to find. And then I do have a podcast also that's called Dog Talk with Dr. Jen, which mm -hmm. there's a link to that on the blog page, but also you can find it if you search for it on, you know, whatever you use to get your podcasts. I think it's pretty much everywhere that you can get most podcasts. So uh, you Thanks can track me down there if you're so inclined. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And Jen, thank you so much for coming on. Um, let's no have our listeners make sure that they subscribe, review, consider supporting the podcast and getting more information by joining Patreon at patreon.com slash pandemic puppy. If you guys need any more help with your puppies, um, check out the puppy raising blueprint course at journeydogtraining.com slash blueprint and join that free pandemic puppy raising support group on Facebook. Um, so thanks again for listening and thanks for being here, Jen. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.